All right. So last week, I said that I, I wanted these two weeks to feel a little weird. I hope I will accomplish that. Um, because what it's doing, what we're trying to do in them is to, like, uh, to follow a thread through the fabric of the scriptures. Um, and last week uh, was about feasting, not one of our normal topics. And the next week, this week, is about beauty. Beauty and community, feasting and community, following those threads through Scripture. Beauty. God's beauty in and of Himself. The beauty of His work, His creation. The fact that He made us as the high point of His creation. The double thumbs up. Everything else was good. But when He made us, He was like, oh, that's very good. I'm like quite proud of myself, I think. But not just made us, but has committed to remake us into the beauty of his beloved community. Beauty is a big deal in the Bible. God is called beautiful. Isaiah tells us that, that he will crown us with a beautiful headdress. Ecclesiastes says that he will make everything beautiful in time. The Old Testament and New Testament both talk about people having beautiful feet. Those who bring good news. James says that the Spirit builds us in, it builds us in, a, in a, a character in us that's not just adornment, but an imperishable beauty. And beyond the Bible, we have all sorts of, of fellow humans who've talked about this who've set the foundations of our thinking about this. You have Plato, who talks about the three transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty, one thing. We tell our kids to stop, stop acting ugly. That is right. Because goodness is beautiful, and meanness is ugly. Truth must be good and beautiful. They all must cohere. Analogously, like we've been talking about all the things in our, when we're talking about community, is that it comes from the inalienable reality of who God is, who is beautiful. Now, for Presbyterians, man, we love truth. We're pretty cool with goodness. But beauty is kind of like a side thing, like if you have the gifts or something. But that's not the case. We just, in our tradition, have often undervalued beauty. But I want you to see, if the only thing I want you to see, there is only one thing, is how much God cares about beauty. Being lived out on what he calls his beloved, his beautiful community. He is the creator and loves to display his own beauty in and for and to the cosmos. He absolutely loves for us to be beautified as a people. And he loves to see us co-create with him to make beauty in the world, for the world, to the world, for its joy. So the first long part of this sermon is just going to be establishing that reality. And then at the end, I'll give you five applications. Genesis sets the stage of beauty. And what I have for you 
is basically, this is one of the weird parts of the sermon. Um, you're going to have about three to five minutes of just looking at the scriptures in relation to what they talk about. That's my favorite. Second favorite. Genesis sets the stage for us. God created the world and everything in it. Now let's take a deep dive into the, the next passage. The passage is admittedly pretty obscure. Bezalel, son of Uri, doesn't usually make the top 100 list of Bible characters. Um, I've, I don't know if any of you have dressed up like Bezalel in the Fall Fest at your churches. 
I did say in the last service that we didn't, I don't know of any VBSs or kids camps that have it, but an old-timer at Redeemer came to me and he said, about 15 years ago, we did have one. And one of the main characters was Bezalel. So good on us. Bezalel was an artist, a master craftsman. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for settings, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. What I did with the kids this morning is literally just a few verses amid two and a half chapters on the robe and garments and headdress of the high priest, which ends in chapter 31, which I just read. In it, God has given Bezalel directions of the intricate beauty of the high priest's breastplate and so much more. In Exodus 28, which leads up to all that, God says to Moses, I'm giving you this for a purpose, for glory and beauty. The garments were vibrant, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel on the priest's chest, and they were aesthetically radiant. Skillfulness is mentioned seven times in those chapters. And you have to remember, again, you guys, these are just newly liberated slaves. The cost would seem inordinate, but they're trying to establish a culture, a new people together in a world that includes their freedom. So like last week in feasting, it's incredibly expensive, and it's expressly non-utilitarian. And God absolutely commanded and curated the beauty for his people to show forth his glory. It involved well-honed, costly metals, refined gemstones, a multitude of different dyed yarns. There is artistry in it that has blue pomegranates. There aren't any blue pomegranates in the world. But it is about that imagination because imagination and creativity are always twins. It has painstaking embroidery. There's even these handmade bells. They're really cool pockets. There's the breastplate. There's a golden diadem, which is just a crown, and on it it says, Holy is the Lord. And in it there's the smell. In, in the, it, when they use that, that, uh, that uh, adornment, the smell of incense and oil and burning wood and flesh fill the space. The sights, sounds, and smells were a smorgasbord of delight. And the priority was the glory of God, but also the gravity of the priesthood and what would go on there. Also the encouragement to Israel to know that they're remembered on the chest of the high priest and to be beauty to the world. Frederick Turner says this, a beautiful thing gives us a sense of depth below the depth. He says it's like um, an innocent wild vertigo as it works through us. The vertigo of beauty created in this 
passage, the setting for the worship of God, determining justice, seeking wisdom. They had this Urim and Thummim that, was, that, that, that they had on their, on their body. It's about the ritualizing of the forgiveness of sin and orienting God's people to His covenant, His promise, and His redemption, which is why I wanted you to have the passage from Revelation as well about what the image of that redemption is like as John sees it in a dream. To that Revelation passage, just after the passage I read to the kids, it says, the first stone was jasper, which is kind of a ready brick gem. By the way, I looked all these up and just enjoyed it. Go for it. Google's real quick. The second was a sapphire, which is often um, a, a blue, a lighter blue, but also there's an orange and orangey pinky one as well. The third was agate, which is swirled in really several colors. The fourth was emerald, which is green. The fifth was onyx, which is black. The, the sixth was carnelian, which is a reddish brown color. Then there's this chrysolite, which is almost a clear green. The eighth was burl, which is a, is a, a bluer green, but also has that clear feel to it. Topaz is orange. Chrysoprase, not sure I'm pronouncing that right, is a darker, clear green. The 11th was jacinth. It's a blazing red. And the 12th was amethyst, which is kind of a hazy purple. Not a purple haze. Hazy purple. Yeah, clarify. Yeah, thank you. All right. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Um, and it says, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates was made of a single pearl. Just want that to sink in a little bit. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, meaning it was so pure that it almost shined back to you like a mirror. These are the colors, the artistry of the New Jerusalem, where we would be inhabitants as God's beloved a beautiful place for a people that he is making beautiful. But the most beautiful image in the whole place is not the architecture or the precious decor, but the fact that God is there, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this would have been mind-blowing to its original Jewish hearers. And I saw no temple in the city. No temple? In a new Jerusalem? That's the whole point of Jerusalem. No, no temple. Because the temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Mind-blowing. So I want you to hear that God is beautiful. His character, His grace, His joy, His glory, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In and of Himself, the, tr the Trinity is in its nature beautiful. And then shares that beauty in the creation of beauty in the world for us to enjoy, for us to not be able to help ourselves but laugh at what he does. He beautifies us in all the ugly that we can still have in us by his grace and mercy. Also that we would then co-participate with him in the creation of more beauty in the world, which then ultimately comes right on back to display the beauty of God. 
I hope that I've established in the scriptures that God cares about beauty from beginning to end. So let's work on a few applications. The first four will be pretty quick. The last one will be a little longer. The whole purpose is to worship the God of beauty. Friends, the reason I showed you all those images was simply this, to marvel, to marvel at God, to be in awe of Him, to worship. It's beyond logic to have a mama fish or a baby fish in a mama fish's mouth. That's just God showing out and showing off. It's like, hey, this will be fun. It'll make my people laugh. God designed the world this way for these joys. And if anything that is truly beautiful is real, its ultimate source, its ground, is God God himself. And so we orient to him as we see the beauty of the earth. We vector in his trajectory. And so worship him accordingly. And so then we need to have our heads on a swivel looking for beauty. The second point, look at your hands, literally. The way that moves, your fingerprints, you have been built by, a, created by a master craftsman. Look at the earth and all its splendor. It reflects God, and so keep looking. Have wide eyes for it. Now, the eye for beauty requires its own level of skill, but that's okay. Take your time, linger until you see. So we look, yes, at sunsets and mountain views, but also to each other and even in ourselves, which could be the hardest place to find beauty at times. Let all come down that mountaintop, into your workplaces, into your kitchens, all the way to the people in your lives and people across the world with all their beautiful cultural realities. The, 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 the reasons the stones aren't the same in the breastplate and um, in the walls is because in, in the picture of the New Jerusalem in Revelation, there are cultural artifacts from, un, from, from across the known world at the time, not just Israel. And let it come all the way down, not just to your friends, but to your enemies, and stare at them until you see the beauty. So collect these masterpieces. Be an art collector. Masterpieces in your heart, maybe on your wall. doesn't matter. But give yourself to this. Because when we give ourselves to this, the only next thing we can do is the third point, that we share this beauty together. That we create spaces for one another to linger in love, to loiter among His grace and mercy. We prepare places of welcome and safety. Your surroundings matter. Design matters. Art matters. Matter matters. And we give ourselves to creating spaces for those things. Please do not hear me say something I am not saying. Beauty does not have to be lavish or expensive. I particularly don't like Rococo. I don't know if you know anything about that, but it's all over the top. But some people do, and that's fine. There is beauty in simplicity. It's why I made simplicity and simple design as well. For us to share our delights in Him And our neighbors, it's just like feasting. It's not about how much you have. It's about the attitude of your heart and sharing it with others. Kids get this intrinsically. They make art to give away. Boxes of it I have. (laughs) And I still have it. It's to be given away to share together. It's about the fridge. To put it on there. 
Y'all, we have grown way too old. You're never too old to color or sketch or try something new. It's okay. Or pluck a string or figure it out to do something like that. We've grown, we've grown too old. Fourthly, there's no way to talk about beauty, and this is a whole sermon series, Sunday school class to develop, but it's only going to be about a minute. Beware of beauty's counterfeits. I would say this, even amid the counterfeits, the only way a counterfeit works is because it's connected to something that's real and beautiful. But beware of them. They can tempt us away from God and neighbor to use his good gifts towards something gaudy or gauche or self-aggrandizing instead of honoring God and neighbor. Beauty in our day and age is about six packs and slim figures in the aesthetic of the human. But it's a counterfeit. But we must, not that those things aren't also beautiful and can be done in really beautiful and great ways. Please don't hear me not say that. But we must also find beauty in our stretch marks and our scars as they tell the story of our redemption. Truly, let the broken things that are mended become beauty for you. I've worn out this illustration a zillion times, the Kintsugi illustration, the broken bowls that are then mended by the gold that fills those cracks and it's stuck together and it's more precious and more beautiful. That is the gospel, the golden repair of a shattered world because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where I want to pivot toward uh, a uniquely Christian contribution to humanity's understanding of beauty. Almost everything I've said until now could have been preached in a synagogue or a mosque or any other place of worship that believed in God as creator. And that's good, because all truth and all beauty is God's truth and God's beauty. That's fine. But Christianity has an aesthetic, a sense of beauty that has something deeply ironic or deeply paradoxical in it. And that is at the core of its understanding of beauty is the ugliest thing that has ever happened in the world. The cross. The beauty of the cross. It's a paradox of glorious beauty and rank ugliness. The brutal reality that we, in our rebellion, have fought off God's beauty And sin has separated us from the source of all beauty. That we, without divine grace, the scriptures say, are dead in sin and there is nothing more ugly than sin and death. Sin and death are the enemies of God's creation. It slashes the canvas of his workmanship. And yet, in the Christian economy of beauty and aesthetics, There is one beautiful death set against the backdrop of his own perfection, his own godliness, his own goodness, his own truth, his own mercy, his own beauty is the death of Jesus. And when I say beautiful death, I do not mean it was a just death. It was utterly unjust. And nor do I mean that it was a peaceful death. Our Lord Jesus cried out in anguish 
in agony. But as we gaze at the cross, what we see is beauty beyond measure because what we see is the very heart of God and his love for a people. That, we would have, that he would have mercy on those who have squandered the beauty. That he would love those who hated him. That he would, he would die that we might live. All because of his love. That even though we have ruined, brought utter ruination upon his creation, that he would then welcome us back to himself because of his love. What our rebellion was responded to was sacrifice, forgiveness, and welcome. And then he says, I want to declare you as my beautiful bride. And then he doesn't only just declare it, he starts to make us beautiful until that great day when we are in that beautiful setting and our characters and our lives and our community and our worship will match its beauty. The artistry in the Bible, the symbolism, the radiance, the instructions of craftsmanship, the images of the new Jerusalem, all that is involved in that is to have us one day end where Revelation does. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. I'm going to end with probably top 10 favorite quotations in all of literature because I think it's beautiful and it describes the beauty of Augustine recognizing it. In Confessions, he says, and I want you to listen to the beauty woven in. Late have I loved you. Beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. He converted later in life. And behold, what kind of statement is that other than turn your eyes to something amazing? And behold, you were within me. I was outside of me and you. I sought you out there and threw myself deformed, ugly, upon the beautiful things that you had made. You were with me, but I was not with you. Those things, the beautiful things, held me far from you. Those things which you would not even, would not even exist if they were not in you, those beautiful things. You called and cried out and broke open my deafness. You shone forth and glowed and chased away my blindness. You blew fragrantly on me, and I drew breath that I would pant for you. These are all sensory ideas, sensory thoughts. I tasted you, and I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I was inflamed with desire for your peace. You could say your righteousness, your glory, your beauty. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray as the psalmist prays and we sang earlier. One thing we ask, one thing we seek after, that we may dwell in your house, O Lord, all the days of our lives. And we might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Amen.